Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching. Welcome to Awaken's weekly worship. We are so glad that you have chosen to be with us. And especially if you are with us for the first time, we want to give you a special welcome. And we'd also like to get to know you. So if you're up for it, I invite you to go to our website, fill out a connection card, and one of us will contact you and set up a time to get together. Now, we are coming from many different places. We are, have been thinking about many different things. So to give us a focus, what I've done is I've chosen a psalm that reminds us what is important to God. It's Psalm 147, starting with verse 7. Sing to the Lord with thanksgiving. Make music to God on the harp. He covers the skies with clouds. He supplies the earth with rain and makes grass grow on the hills. He provides food for the cattle and for the young ravens when they call. His pleasure is not in the strength of the horses nor his delight in the legs of a man. The Lord delights in those who fear him, who put their hope in his unfailing love. Let's worship.
for that good news um, in every moment God is good before we move on we're going to sing the ever popular song of blessing over our kids sing together
friends. Uh, my name's Micah. If we haven't met, I'm one of the pastors here at Awaken. Thanks for joining us. Glad you're here. Uh, welcome back to the, most of you and welcome to some of you for the first time. Um, we are in a series called Lost in Translation and so uh, last week we talked about a famous passage in the New Testament from Matthew's Gospel uh, known as the Great Commission. Also, by the way, um, I should, well, The things I said last week about the Great Commission maybe, possibly, could have been interpreted as a little bit of a critique, and rightfully so, uh, because there, there are some things to critique. But I guess if I had it to do over again, I would have said all the things I said last week, but I would have started with, you know, there are lots of people, uh, probably many of our grandparents or great-grandparents, maybe even parents, um, who, whose lives were impacted by the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Spirit. Um, and many of those people are wonderful, wonderful, God-fearing people that many of us look up to and uh, gave their lives to something really good, which is the spreading of the good news about Jesus. And that is to be commended and honored, period. And then I would have said all the things I said last week. So in the event that you were like, geez, Micah, that's kind of harsh. What if somebody was like a missionary for their whole life? I thought about that afterwards, and uh, that's what I would have said. So there you go. Um, this week, we're going to talk about a passage from the Old Testament, 2 Kings chapter 6, about one of the more famous prophets of Israel's history, a guy named Elisha. So a little background before we even read the story. The book, books of Kings, 1 and 2 Kings, are to be taken together. They tell the story of Israel's kind of um, experience or, or history as it relates to kings. Uh, so before they had a king and then after they had kings. Um, and so it begins with the, the succession of Solomon, uh, who, or I should say the succession of David, uh, by Solomon, his son, as the king of Israel. Um, early on in the book, Solomon asks for wisdom in chapter 3 of 1 Kings, which is a beautiful moment, very uh, lovely. Uh, he builds the temple for Israel, for Yahweh. He, um, but things go south pretty quickly. He begins to marry a whole bunch of pagan um, women, making allegiances and alliances through marriage, which uh, he was instructed not to do. He amasses huge amounts of gold. He begins to enslave his own people to build things in Israel. By the time he's done, the narrator tells us that he's no different than uh, Pharaoh, which is where they came from in Egypt. Um, chapters 12 to 16 tell the story of Israel splitting, so the two kingdoms split. There are, I think it's 10 kings, uh, 10 tribes in the north, if I'm not mistaken, um, called Israel, and two tribes in the south called Judah. Uh, in the north, they build alternate capital cities in, in Bethel and Dan, equipped with temples and, and sort of, uh, well, idols, quite frankly. Um, and then chapter 17 of 1 Kings, all the way up through chapter 8 of 2 Kings, is basically the stories of all the kings of Israel. And there were many of them. In the north, there were uh, 20 that the narrator tells us about, and not a single one of them was good. Uh, not a single one of them followed Yahweh. Not a single one of them was faithful to the covenant. It was just pretty much all bad news up there in the north. In the south, there were about eight good kings uh, and 12 bad kings. Um, and right in the middle of this section, with all these kings, we get the stories of Elijah and Elisha, two prophets to the kings. And what they do, I'll just talk about in just a minute, but Elijah is most famously known for the, the showdown on Mount Carmel, which I've actually been to, which is very cool to see, uh, where he calls down fire on the prophets of Baal and basically be kills everybody. Um, and, and then Elisha, he takes over the mantle of leadership from Elijah. Uh, at the beginning of 2 Kings, the mantle of leadership is passed from Elijah to Elisha. Um, Elijah is taken up in a whirlwind, and Elisha actually asks for a double blessing 
of Elijah's spirit, which he does receive. So as the narrator is telling us about Elijah first, he tells us about seven miraculous events that Elijah is sort of prophet over. And then, of course, you can imagine, Elisha, there are 14 miraculous events that he sort of presides over. Um, and it's important for us to know what do the prophets do. Uh, so the role of the prophet was essentially to speak on behalf of God. They were covenant watchdogs. They kept Israel kind of um, uh, on short accounts in terms of what God asked them to do and be in the world related to the covenant. They would call out idolatry and injustice whenever it was found among the people. And they challenged the people to repent and follow Torah, which was the books of the law. So that's where we're kind of picking up the story in 2 Kings chapter 6. Elijah has been taken up to heaven in a whirlwind. Elisha has just begun his prophetic ministry and he just made an axe float in a river, which is a pretty good day. But then we read in verse 8 of chapter 6. Now the king of Aram was at war with Israel. After conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. The man of God sent word to the king of Israel. So that's the prophet Elisha, sends word to the king, beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked on the place indicated by the man of God and time and time again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on guard. This enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded, tell me which one of you is on their side the king, with the king of Israel? None of us, my lord, said his officers. But Elisha, the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. Go find out where he is, the king ordered, so I can send men and capture him. So they reported back, he is in Dothan. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there, and they went by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God got up and went out early the next morning, an army of horses and chariots had surrounded the city. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do, the servant asked. Don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. Speaking about his servant. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. As the enemy came down toward them, Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. And so he struck them with blindness. Elisha told them, this is not the road and this is not the city. Follow me. And I will lead you to the man you are looking for. It's a bit of trickery there. And he led them to Samaria, which is a, uh, an Israelite city. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so they can see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and there they were inside Samaria. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, shall I kill them? Do not kill them, he answered. Your text might say, would you kill those who uh, you have captured with your own sword or bow, but really it should be, did you kill those or would you kill those that you captured with your own sword or bow? Set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them and after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away and they returned to their master so the bands of Aram stopped raiding Israel. Pray with me. God, as we take a look at this passage in this story, I pray that uh, by your spirit, uh, which we believe is present in the world and in your church, empowering us to do and be who you've called us to do and be, uh, that you would speak to us, uh, even from a text so, uh, so ancient and so old, that there would be a fresh word from the living God this morning for us, we pray. In Christ's name and by the power of the spirit, amen. Um, I mentioned it, I made a comment there at the end, uh, do not kill them, he answered. Would you kill those you have captured with your own sword or bow? Basically, the prophet is saying like, did you capture these people? No, you didn't. So I'll tell you what we're going to do with them. That's kind of what he was saying. So uh, this is a fascinating story, friends. Um, and it may be a surprise that it's a lost in translation passage. Like there's, it's not uh, terribly grotesque or disturbing or patriarchal. Um, but let's sort of get this straight, like what's happening here. The Israelites are being attacked and bothered by this band of, uh, of raiders from Aram. Uh, they have surrounded them and the prophet calls down blindness on them. First, he opens the eyes of his servant to show the chariots, the angels that are there. Uh, then he calls down blindness on them. He leads them to Samaria, an Israelite city, where they're surrounded by their enemies. The king of Israel asks the prophet, like, should we kill them? And the prophet says, no. Did you capture them with your sword? No, you didn't. So here's what we're going to do. To fix uh, the problem, to make them go away, we're going to host 
a rager. We're gonna throw a smashing party. We're gonna, we're gonna give food and drink and a feast to our enemies. And the band of Aram stopped raiding Israel, the text says. My wife has this shirt that she wears every now and again. It says, kill them with kindness. <laughs> Which seems like an unlikely way to win an ancient battle, but that's basically what happened. Uh, and I picked this passage because I just, I'm fascinated by the ending. I love it. The fact that like in an ancient world where, you know, bloodshed was pretty normal and war was pretty normal, the prophet says, no, we're not going to kill them. We're not going to use swords and bows. We're going to host a party. We're going to show them hospitality. So fascinating. But then there's also a couple of moments in this uh, story that suggest some realities that might be hard to pass by without a couple of questions as it relates to angels and uh, spiritual warfare and then, of course, prayer and just how it works. So we'll stop there first, angels and, and spiritual warfare and prayer, and then we'll finish with hospitality. Can hospitality heal the world? That's my question. So verse 16 leads us to believe that uh, there is more than meets the eye. It says, don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Do you guys remember the Transformers? I'm not talking about the bad movie with Shia LaBeouf. I'm talking about old school cartoon Transformers. We're talking Optimus Prime and the Autobots. We're talking uh, the Decepticons led by none other than Megatron, the what do they call that guy? Uh, the enemy, the foe, the villain. Uh, most of them were cars, some of them were planes. Um, but the real secret to the Transformer was that there was more, more than meets the eye. In fact, that was the theme song. Transformers, more than meets the eye, right? Like, there was, there was more going on. Like, it looked like a VW Beetle, you know, a cute little bug. But under the right circumstances, it would transform into this fighting soldier. There was more going on than what you could see on the surface, and that's a bit of what's happening in this story with the prophet Elisha. In verse 16, the servant of the man of God got up, he went out, saw an army of horses and chariots, surrounded the city. He freaks out. He says to Elisha, we're doomed. But Elisha says, Lord, open his eyes, let him see. And so he does. And the Lord opened his eyes and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire, angelic beings, if you will, all around Elisha. So this is a little bizarre, right? We're getting into spiritual warfare. We're getting into angels and demons and like this sort of other world kind of thing happening here. And on multiple occasions throughout the Bible, the assertion is made that there is more going on in any given moment than many of us see. Think Daniel in the lion's den. Think Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Think uh, about the Israelites crossing the Red Sea. Moses at the burning bush for crying out loud. The shepherds keeping watch over their flocks by night. Visited by angels. Peter and Cornelius in the book of Acts. Paul says that we've battled not against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities. Pretty consistently, the Bible makes this claim that there is a spiritual reality at play all around us that we may or may not be aware of. And so I want to affirm that. I want to affirm what it seems clear that the Bible seems to be offering as a reality that is true. But it's also where I'm going to stop. And I, I'm going to choose not to say anything more precise than that or go any further than that. I'm not going to pretend to be knowledgeable about this world. Uh, I'm not going to pretend to tell you how and why we sometimes seem to brush up against it or the veil gets sort of pulled back and we see more than, more than meets the eye, as it were. Uh, I'm not going to invite us to build any systematic theologies about or from this text or any others like it. I'm not going to attempt to predict or discern why this happens, when it happens, or how it happens. Often in Christianity and in churches, especially with people like me, uh, there's a confidence that's, that exists, that there's specific knowledge or precise knowledge in this area of angels and demons and spiritual dimensions that are sort of beyond what we see every single day. And to be perfectly honest, I'm just not sure it's all that helpful. Uh, and quite frankly, oftentimes, in my experience, it has been really harmful to people when folks like me say things that, 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 that you can be confident or build systematic theologies around angels and demons and spiritual warfare. 
So I'm not going to do that. But for our purposes today, I'm going to affirm what the scripture seems to affirm, that there are moments in the Bible and in our lives that many of you would testify to that there is something happening beyond what we can see, that there is a reality, a world, a spiritual dimension that's all around us right here and right now, that what we can empirically see, taste, touch, smell here isn't all that's happening. And I think that is okay. I, actually, I think that's good to affirm, to keep ourselves open to the spiritual, to the supernatural, to the miraculous, to the things that, again, Scripture and the Gospels especially testify to over and over and over and over again. But I'm not going to go out on a limb and say, here's how it happens, here's why it happens, here's when you can expect it to happen, here's what you can do when it does happen. But I'm going to just say, if and when you feel like you are surrounded and doomed by a force that you cannot beat, take heart, my friends, because... Those who are with God are more than those who are against God. Said differently, greater is Christ in you than any darkness or evil that exists in the world because he, Christ, has overcome the world and overcome death and evil itself. So be encouraged. Prayer. As we move on in this passage, verse 18, we read this. The prophet says, Strike them with blindness, and the Lord struck them with blindness. Now, while this is not the main part of this passage, or the main point in this passage, I think it does invite us to consider what we believe about prayer, uh, the nature of it and how it works. Like, is this how it works? You just ask for what you need and God does it? Uh, Is God in the business of striking people blind? Like, is that what we can attribute the inability to see to God? Um, do you have to be on the right side in order to ask God to do these kinds of things? Like if somebody who's unrighteous or evil asks God to strike others with blindness, God's like, no, sorry, you're not on my team. Or um, can anybody ask God and God obliges? More seriously, why is it that my friends who want something and have wanted something for so many years have tried everything in their power, including prayer and, and fasting and the laying on of hands, and yet their prayers seem to go unanswered? Why is it that my brother will likely die too young from brain cancer after having been prayed for, after having prayed, been prayed for, had hands laid on him, fasted for? And what about your stories? What about your stories of prayer? Where you applied the right formula, what you've been told all of your life, You should, you ought to pray. And nothing happened, or it seemed nothing happened. Nothing moved, nothing changed. Your prayer went unanswered. One of the things that we value at Awaken is authenticity. Uh, It's over on our board over here. And so I'm not going to sit here today and pretend like all you have to do is pray and be faithful. Um... And it's a bit like the first point that I made. There's less precision here, and I'll be the first to admit that I have more questions about prayer than I do answers. I have never been good at prayer. Maybe I should say, I've never felt like I lived up to the expectations of prayer for a pastor, that I would spend hours on my knees in quiet in prayer. Uh, I don't understand why some prayers go unanswered and some prayers seem to be answered. Some prayers seem to go straight to God's heart and others seem to be like clanging off the walls of heaven. I don't don't know. I don't understand that. But here's what I will offer. I know that God is not a vending machine that dispenses answers to those who have enough faith. I know that people have been told that in the church and by pastors and I know that that's not true. I don't believe that that's helpful for people who are honestly seeking God's presence or God's to hear God's voice or to be in communion with God, I don't believe that that's true. So I'm not going to tell you that your prayers haven't been answered because you don't have enough faith or because there's evil or sin in your life and so your access to God is blocked. I don't believe that's true and I don't believe that's helpful. I'll add to that, in Scripture, prayer and the examples of prayer seem to run the gamut. There's all kinds of prayer experiences in the Bible. 
There are prayers that get answered, seemingly. There are prayers that go unanswered. Like the, the prophets, over and over and over again, the psalmist, God, why are you so deaf to my prayer? The psalmist says, Jesus himself prays, if there is another way, if this, this cup can pass from me to somebody else, please do it. And that doesn't happen. That's what Jesus wanted. That's what he prayed for. But it doesn't happen. Something else happens. Far less desirable. There are prayers by the righteous and there are prayers by the unrighteous. There are prayers that are heal, uh, answered and, and prayers that go unanswered. There's nearly an example in scripture for all of the possibilities for prayer. And so... What I want to say today is that I think all of that belongs. So whatever your experience with prayer has been, if it's not, strike them with blindness and the Lord struck them with blindness. If that's not been your experience, that's okay. That's one example. It's not a, we, we shouldn't build a theology around prayer because of that. Take all of the examples of prayer as you think about what is prayer and, and how do I engage in it. Uh, which seems like a cop-out, right? Like it all belongs. And yet there is this tension that exists around prayer that it's it's tricky sometimes it's beautiful at times and it's life-giving at times and sometimes it's really hard I had this friend that I worked with a while back and he used to say that sometimes there are things that these are tensions that we'll have to manage versus problems that we're going to be able to solve and in an organization sometimes you can solve a problem and we do though we do that and sometimes in an organization this is just a tension that we're going to have to 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 um to manage over the course of our life and I think that's, in some ways, our relationship with prayer. This is not something that's gonna, you're going to get a silver bullet and finally figure out exactly what to do and how to do it. But rather, it will be a tension that you live in the midst of as a part of your, fair, your spiritual life. And I'll say also that prayer is more than request and answer. It may seem obvious to some, but I think it's worth repeating. Prayer is a posture. And it's an important posture of the, in the life of faith. Because prayer engages my heart with the heart of God. Regardless of the outcome of my petition, that's always a good thing. When my heart is engaged with the divine, that's always a good thing. Prayer is about presence. It's about being intentional with your energies and your time and your longings and your desires. And bringing those things into the presence of the divine is never a bad thing. It's always a good thing. And if God is anything like Jesus, we can bring our longings and our desires, our hopes, our dreams, our sadness, our anger into God's presence. And that's never a bad thing. So prayer is about presence. And prayer is, is, it's, is about saying out loud in our hearts, uh, like, that, that we are not alone. Whenever we pray, we acknowledge our need and our dependence on something other than ourselves. So when we engage in the act of prayer, by doing that, it's acknowledging, it's admitting that there's something else out there that I need, that I am in need of, that I am, uh, that I am not alone. So anytime you engage in prayer, anytime you open your heart or your spirit or your mouth, to the divine, you are declaring, I am not alone. And who doesn't need that? So don't stop praying. Coming from, uh, coming from a guy for whom prayer is difficult, I would encourage you, engage in it. Don't stop. And whatever that looks like for you, silence is prayer. Words are prayer. Intention of my heart is prayer. Paul says, pray without ceasing. Did he mean, like, never stop talking? Of course not. It's a posture. It's an attitude. It's an internal reality. So I would encourage you, do it. All the more. And as we close this morning, I want to turn our attention to a question. I want to invite us to a posture of wondering and curiosity. In an ancient world, like this, 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 there's a number of bizarre stories in the Bible, but this one to me is striking. In an ancient world dominated by tribal identity and bloodshed, where war and primal tendencies are the norm, the king asks the prophet, should we kill our enemies? The ones who have been raiding our villages, wreaking havoc on our women and children. And the prophet says, no. What we will do is invite them over for dinner. It's just so bizarre. 
So here's the question. Here's the posture of wonder and curiosity I want to invite us to. Can hospitality save the world? Said differently, what role do acts of hospitality play in the healing of our relationships and conflict? What role does hospitality, hosting, someone else, what role does that play in, our, in the healing of our relationships? There's a conflict between the people of Israel and these raiders from Aaron. Harm is being done. People are being, uh, the, the power is being exert, exerted. The wheels are falling off the bus. And the response of the prophet is exactly the opposite of everything we were taught on the playground. It is the opposite of everything that comes so naturally to us. Like right when we want to return the volley of violence with, with the same energy, we see the prophet saying, no, let's host a meal. Let's offer hospitality. So what does it mean to host? What does it mean to show hospitality to somebody? To host someone is to consider them. In 2021, do we need any more of that? Where the other, the person on the other side of your conflict is considered? It's to think about them before they arrive. And not in a derogatory or pejorative way, in a life-giving, generative, restorative way. To host someone is to prepare something for someone else. It's to create space for someone. It's to plant a seed, to till the ground and plant a seed that you hope might grow. To show hospitality is to be selfless. It's to be others-focused. It's really hard to be hospitable when it's actually about you because you can't hide your motives behind hospitality. Eventually it shows up. Like, have you ever been to that party when in the end you realize it's really not about the people that, you've, that have been invited but about the person throwing the party or some selfish gain that they have? It's easy to see through that. You can't hide motives behind true hospitality. It's transparent. And hospitality to somebody you know and love and get along with, that's easy. But to show hospitality and service to someone that you're in conflict with is stunning. It's arresting. It's surprising. Like, imagine if you were the band of raiders from Aram, and what came to you was not bows and arrows and knives and swords, but a kind and generous offer. It's like, it stops you. Because it seems so unnatural. So here's the question. This bizarre story with an equally bizarre ending between two warring clans, two tribes in conflict with one another, and it's hospitality that lowers the temperature. It's a surprising act of service and grace that seems to change the trajectory of the relationship. So, is there anyone in your life with whom you are experiencing conflict? And what would an act of hospitality and kindness look towards that person or those persons? Is there anybody in your life with whom you are in conflict with, with whom there is strife or struggle? And if so, can you close your eyes and imagine a scenario in which you extended hospitality to that person or those persons? where you went out of your way to host, to create a space for them, where you thought of them not in vengeance or in a vindictive way or a way to get them back, but rather to bless them. I don't know if you're catching this, but this sounds a heck of a lot like Jesus. It sounds a whole lot like the gospel, the good news, what Jesus taught and invites his disciples to do and be in the world. When someone asks you to carry their luggage, he says, take it one. When someone asks you to take it a mile, go two. When someone asks for your cloak, give them your tunic also. When someone strikes you, turn the other cheek. It's the third way. It's the, it's, it's, it's the rising above what seems normal and natural in our everyday world and doing the thing that Jesus invites us to. And it's as if this was before its time. It's as if the prophet Elisha knew something about what was coming 
So is there anyone in your life whom you experience conflict with? And what would one small act of hospitality look like? And maybe even take the risk of praying for that person and for your heart towards them. Maybe even trust that there's more going on here than meets the eye. That God is at work bringing peace and forgiveness and grace to bear even in you and even in your enemy. Pray with me. God, this morning as we hear hopefully a fresh and new word in 2021 from a story that was written 2,000 years ago. I pray that by your spirit you would be with my friends and that you would maybe bring to mind the name or the face of a person with whom there may be some struggle, some conflict between and with. And I pray, God, that you would, by your spirit, lead and guide, maybe even bring your creative energy to our hearts and minds in these next few moments of silence to brainstorm uh, what a creative act of hospitality towards that person could look like. That you would maybe put a, a, a burden on our hearts to even pray for that person, to wish them well, and surrender them into your care that we might believe that there's more going on all around us all the time that we can see and trust that in fact you are good and you are bringing about hope and peace and forgiveness and grace so give us the eyes to see god open our eyes where we're blind Holy Spirit, speak, I pray.
It's like that song was perfect for this moment. <laughs> um, well, the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. Whenever you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took a cup and he blessed it and he said, this is my blood, which will be shed for you. Whenever you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. And as we come to this table, it's important for us to be reminded that this is the table not of the church, but of the Lord. It's made ready for those who love God and those who want to love God more. Those uh, who have faith, uh, a lot of faith, a little bit of faith, those who have been here before, um, or maybe it's been a long time, or maybe never before, those of us who have tried to follow and those of us who fail. So these are the gifts of God for the people of God. So come and receive them, not because I invite you or somebody else with a collar or a stole or a robe, but because Christ, the resurrected one, invites you to come to the table. So as you take the bread, I invite you to hear these words, the body of Christ broken for you, take and eat. And as you take the cup, I invite you to hear these words, the blood of Christ shed for you, take and drink. Friends, it's always good to be together. I'm looking forward to really being together. Uh, if you haven't been paying attention or just have missed it, August 1st, we are back in the building, my friends. Um, it's not going to be hot. I just have a feeling. And uh, that's been my prayer. So, you know, speaking of prayer, we'll see how that goes, right? Uh, but August 1st, we're back in the building. Two gatherings, 9.30 and 11. It's going to be... I don't even know what it's going to be. Um, but having said that, that means we're kind of like starting a church again. We've, we had over 150 volunteers or 200 volunteers or something crazy like that back when we were meeting, who on a monthly basis, like we're a part of our rhythm. And uh, you all have had a long break in that. And so we're starting things back up again. And we really want to encourage you, please um, respond to the email that's gone out. If you don't get the Awaken Weekly, subscribe to that. Uh, there's lots of ways you can be involved in just helping make things happen on a regular basis. Um, that's an assumption that we make, that being a part of community is that you're involved, that you you chip in, you lend a hand. Uh, if you need a break and you, you're tired, you need to sit in the back for a while and get your, catch your breath, that's fine. But the assumption is that if this is home, then you eventually put your... What do they say? Put your shoulder to the plow or something like that? Put your nose to the grindstone? I don't know. Something. But, um, so that's out there. And to be perfectly honest, I don't know where the announcements are that I was supposed to give you for tonight. And so that's the only thing I do know. Everything else is in the Awaken Weekly uh, on the website. Check the calendar. And, um... Mel, do you know of anything I'm missing? Well, I have the... Uh, you do? I sure do. What are they? Would you like this? Or do you want me to read them? Sure. <laughs> there you go. Here we go. <laughs> uh, Enneagram seminar, it's coming up. Jane and Karen Bergstrom, July 24th, 10 to 12. Last day to register, July 18th. We're reopening and serving at Awaken, August 1st. It's coming. And then Camp Create, day three. Some kids are going fishing. We got cupcake decorating with Jess Smith, who is like no slouch. I mean, she could be on the great British baking show. Yeah. She absolutely could. So if yeah. you like to bake, you want to get your kids in on that. Uh, painting with Alyssa Whetstone. There you go, friends. That's what we got. Um, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you and give you his peace in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the church gathered together said, Amen. Grace and peace to you. Thank you.